Let's pray. Father, we are here to honour you. We honour you in the, the songs that we sing. We honour you as we listen to your word. And we ask, Lord, for your blessing, that you'll open our hearts and our ears, that what goes into our hearts will be from you. Lord, not from me, but your voice speaking. Amen. So, it's that time of year again. It's a time of hype, excessive spending, cheesy music. Love a bit of cheesy music. Family celebrations. It's a time of laughter for some and sadness and loneliness for others. And for better or worse, we have this significant landmark this time of year. Every year there's lots of anticipation. For some there's a huge build-up. And then it's over. And then we spend the following 12 months recovering and then getting ready all over again. For many, there's waiting, there's hope, there's great joy. Imagine, though, that Christmas didn't come once a year, but once every 10 years or every 100 years. Once every 1,000 years. A 1,000-year build-up to a once-in-a-millennium event. And we might not live to see that event. I mean, you might not. I'm planning to live that long. We'll see. Um, but we could tell our children it's coming, so they can tell their own children and their children, and there's a thousand years of waiting, and then, boom, it's here. The event that's been anticipated for 50 generations. What a party! What a celebration. And this was the position that the Jews were in. So they had their sacred text, their scriptures, and those scriptures proclaimed the coming of one special person, a Messiah, they called him, a king, who was going to free them from slavery, who'd usher in an era of unprecedented blessing and joy. Now, of course, when you wait for something so long, probably some are starting to wonder, will it ever happen? Are we misreading the scriptures? But there's always a faithful core of believers who know it's true. They know the Messiah's coming, and they know that when he comes, things are going to be dramatically different. He'll change everything. So today we're going to look at a small handful of those scriptures. That's words that were written down a hundred, a thousand, two thousand years before the Messiah arrived, who talked about, which they talked about who he would be, what he would do, and how he'd be characterized. And if you think about it, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's amazing that we're able to do this. For those people who struggle with doubt, who can't quite overcome their disbelief, the, the Messianic prophecies, they present one of the most compelling cases for the argument that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Exactly who the Bible tells us he was. The Son of God. The only person who can give us meaning, give us true hope. The only one who can save us from ourselves. And just to reinforce this point, remember that the book that we call the Bible isn't one book. It's 66 
different books written by different authors over the span of 2,000 years or more. And together, these books form the story of God. And in this diverse collection of writings, we see time and time again predictions of the coming Messiah. And each prophecy brings a different piece of the puzzle, so that what we have here is not a collusion between authors, not one author stealing from another, but a contribution of lots of different signposts, all pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, experts can't quite agree how many messianic prophecies there are in the Bible. Some say it's up to 300. 300 separate prophecies from different sources over many generations that are all fulfilled 100% in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to try and cover all 300 prophecies this morning. We're going to look at uh, two or three, and I think we'll all marvel at how well they fit with what was to happen hundreds of years later. So before we open the Bible, which we're going to do very soon, I'd like to read you a quote, and this is from a book called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. And in this book, they're looking at how statistically likely it would be for prophecies to be fulfilled like this. Now, perhaps to make the maths a bit easier for themselves, they didn't cover all 300 prophecies, they just took eight. Eight of the clearest prophecies, most obviously fulfilled by Jesus and only by Jesus. And this is what they write. Suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17. That's 10 multiplied by itself 17 times. One with 17 zeros after it. 100,000 trillion. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17 silver dollars on the face of Texas. Uh, Texas is nearly three times the size of the UK. They'll cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. And then blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that it's the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. I don't know if you can visualize that, but let's just say this is not very likely. Not likely that these prophecies would have come true unless, that is, there really is a God and Jesus really is his son. Well, if that's true, why don't more people believe in Jesus? I hear you ask. A good question, I reply. The truth is that we don't draw near to a statistic. We draw near to a person. Let's find out a bit more about that person. Now, cast your minds back uh, two series, if you were with us. Uh, we're pausing in the middle of Galatians, and before that it was Genesis. And you may remember that in the story of the fall of mankind, the serpent tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Eve ate it and then gave some to Adam, and he ate it too. And after that, 
God tells them all, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, the terrible consequences of their actions. So in Genesis 3.15, God says this to the serpent. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse has been given a technical name, which I'll try and pronounce, the Proto-Evangelium. Proto means first, Evangelium meaning good news. So this verse gives us our first glimpse in the Bible of the good news of a coming Savior, right at the beginning of the story of God. Now, it's possible to look at this verse and say it's just talking about the fact that humans and snakes don't get on very well with each other. But that's got to be missing the point a bit, hasn't it? Because we just read about a snake that can talk, that can persuade, that can deceive. This is not just a snake, clearly. And this curse that God pronounces is about more than just the natural animosity that exists between snakes, the apex predators, and pretty much every other living creature. You shall bruise his feet. So didn't the offspring of the snake, those evil men who were following his wishes, didn't they nail Jesus' feet to a rough-hewn piece of wood? Weren't Jesus' heels bruised as he hung on the cross, drawing his final breaths? He shall bruise your head. Now, bruising the head, that's a crushing, overwhelming defeat, isn't it? Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Revelation 20, 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Jesus, commander of the armies of heaven, overwhelmingly defeats the devil, that ancient serpent. So way back at the beginning the writer of Genesis saw a glimpse of the coming Messiah, the one who would overcome the great enemy of mankind. And I say the great enemy of mankind deliberately. And it's worth explaining why I say that. So usually enemies are on a similar level to each other. America, the enemy of Russia. Muhammad Ali was the enemy of George Foreman. Tom the enemy of Jerry. Luke Skywalker, the enemy of Darth Vader. Capitalism is the enemy of socialism. Lex Luthor, the enemy of Superman. And most importantly, Sideshow Bob, the enemy of Bart Simpson. So we don't say that an ant, a single ant, is the enemy of a whale. You know, maybe if the ant could swim, it could bite the whale, but would the whale feel it? My point is that Satan is our enemy. He wants to destroy us. He can aspire to be the enemy of God, but let's face it, 
Against God, he doesn't have the slightest chance. Satan thinks he has a chance against us. But look whose side we're on. And since we're on Jesus' side, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, verse 20, the first part of that verse, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now that's his head well and truly bruised, isn't it? This is encouraging, yes? Let's turn to Micah. Micah chapter 5. Micah is one of the shorter books in the Old Testament, which can be a bit hard to find. It's after Psalms, which is roughly in the middle of most Bibles. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah chapter 5. Check this out. It's brilliant. This is probably written about 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. Do you have any idea what might happen in the year 2718? What society will be like? For that matter, do you think that back in 1318, people would have had the faintest notion of what our lives would be like? This prophecy was given 700 years before Christ, the Messiah, appeared on earth. See how well it fits. We're going to read from the start of the chapter up to the first bit of verse 5. Micah 5, starting at verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. You can see how this would be encouraging to the Israelites, can't you? Now, just to give this book some context, the book of Micah deals with God's judgment and forgiveness. So Micah concentrates on the sins, the wrongdoing of the Jewish nation, and the judgment that God's going to bring on them, but he also addresses God's ultimate forgiveness. And these are characteristics of God that we should always hold in tension. Because he's a loving, forgiving God, but he's also a righteous God, holy. He can't tolerate sin. The nations will be judged. On the other hand, God's wrath is terrible. He's an awesome, supreme king and judge. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, says the writer to the Hebrews. And yet he's merciful and tender, and he longs to restore his people. So Micah says that the nation will be under siege. A rod will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Judge of Israel is another name for God. So Old Testament prophecies, they often have multiple fulfillments in the run-up to the arrival of Christ. And some commentators say that this prophecy was fulfilled 
when the Assyrians came against Israel, which happened during Micah's lifetime. But looking beyond that, what was the state of affairs at the time of Christ? So the Roman army was in occupation. Israel had formed an alliance with Rome, but it was a humiliating alliance. There was no doubt which side was top dog as the Romans introduced their horrific sports, causing countless Christians and other enemies of the state to die in the arena. Israel is under siege. I look again at what the prophet Micah says in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, Jesus certainly was from ancient days because he's eternal. There's no time before which he is not. Now, remind me. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the little town. You ever, ever wondered why the carol starts, O little town of Bethlehem? Because it's straight out of this prophecy in the book of Micah, little Bethlehem. And it's, it's counterintuitive for a great king to come from what at least used to be such a tiny, insignificant place. Bethlehem, a place of no account, too small to be mentioned even as a clan. Worthless, tiny Bethlehem. It is on. Uh, one of the things the Romans liked to do while they, was in, while they were in charge was to count their citizens. If you know how many people you've got, you know how much you ought to be making in taxes. Uh, you might also know how many people need to be, uh, are around to fight in your wars, how many slaves you might make. But let's face it, for all governments, it comes down to money. They wanted to know how many people are going to be paying taxes. Get them registered, make sure they're paying. It, kept, it took a lot of money to keep the Roman army marching. So the Roman order was, get back to your hometowns and get registered. Now at the time, Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth, and Mary was pregnant. So we'll pick up their story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke 2, verses 1 to 6. Luke 2, 1 to 6. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. All the world means the entire Roman Empire, right? This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. I'll read a bit further. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So keep a finger in Luke 2. We're going to go back to it in a tick. 
Now, I can't impress on you strongly enough how improbable this was. So the safest route from Nazareth to Bethlehem would be 80 or 90 miles. Now, we have no idea how often Joseph made the trip back home, but remember, there were no cars or buses, not so much as a, a bicycle. You can't call an Uber in Nazareth back in about 0 AD. You might be able to get your hands on a horse or a donkey if you're wealthy enough, but most people would have to walk everywhere or tag along with a caravan, which is a group of people moving with animals, tents, and so on. So here's Joseph with a pregnant wife. Even with a donkey, it's going to take a week or more to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Under any other circumstances, would they have gone? And I say, probably they took the safest route, but there was no truly safe route. Because bandits were a real problem. If you fell ill on the way, or if Mary had gone into labor early, there'd be no doctors, no hospitals. So no man in his right mind would make the journey under these conditions unless he had to. And so it is that the decree of the supreme ruler of Rome forces Mary and Joseph back to Joseph's home, the tiny, irrelevant town of Bethlehem. Now, the people of Bethlehem have probably long since given up hope that they would see the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. And maybe they thought it already happened and they missed it. But it was about to come true. Micah said, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Probably at the time, hardly anyone would know. Jesus came to be king. When he was crucified, the sign the Romans posted over his head was, here is the king of the Jews. And they meant it mockingly. But it was true. Jesus ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God where the reign of the king is not over lands, any king can rule over lands, but it's over hearts, which is much, much harder to achieve. Micah says, verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. And Micah says, verse 5, he shall be their peace. Do you remember what the angels said after Jesus was born? And they appeared to the shepherds. Back to Luke 2. Back to Luke 2. Verse 8. Luke 2, 8 to 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth. Micah was right. He shall be their peace. 
Let's turn now to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. For now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. Micah, he shall be their peace. The angels, peace on earth. Paul the apostle, he himself is our peace. Probably the Jews thought that Micah was talking about peace from their enemies, no more war, no more oppression. And one day that will be the case. But Paul tells us of a much more important, much more fundamental peace that Jesus ushered in. The dividing wall, the inner wall in the temple beyond which only the consecrated, the holy priest could pass, that's gone. The hostility, the violence of the law of Moses, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that's gone too. It's now possible, in a way the Israelites could barely hope, it's possible to be forgiven. Possible for every man, woman, boy and girl to approach God himself past that dividing wall. No need to worry that God's righteous anger will burn against our sin and destroy us where we stand. Jesus Christ put himself in the way of that anger. It fell on him and so he truly is our peace. As Christians, we can be in the middle of the worst trial, difficult circumstances, and still know peace. Peace that makes no sense. And this is a promise of God to us. The first half of this year was very difficult for me. Now, that's an understatement. It's one of the most difficult times I've known in my life. Times when I've known I needed to lean into God, but I didn't even have the energy to do that. And I know that many of you prayed for me and my family at that time. Thank you. And then while the crisis was in full flow, a close colleague took his life. He was a man who I'd recruited, who everybody liked, a man I'd been able to depend on, and whose company I'd enjoyed. And not long after his 40th birthday, he made his final decision. And there was a stressful 36 hours after his family first reported him missing. They were ringing round everyone he knew had we heard from him. Me, being a cybersecurity specialist, I logged onto the computer systems to try and see if there was any trace of him. And there was nothing from 7 o'clock on the Friday. And then on the Sunday, in the morning, just before church, the call came to say that he'd been found. He had a partner and young children, and everyone was devastated. And I went down to his funeral in Bristol, and my heart was heavy as I traveled, and I wept for the entire funeral. And yet, 
as I journeyed to and from the funeral, as I walked from the train station to the crematorium, this song was in my heart. Your light broke through my night, restored exceeding joy. Your grace fell like the rain and made this desert live. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have turned my sorrow into joy. Your hand lifted me up. I stand on higher ground. Your praise rose in my heart and made this valley sing. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have turned my sorrow into joy. And this is hard to understand for anyone who's not known this piece, this joy. And it, it does no disrespect to the memory of those we've lost. You remember that in the 23rd Psalm, the psalmist says of God, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Well, it's possible to be in deep anguish of the soul and yet know the peace that Jesus brings. The only peace that can possibly break through the very worst of circumstances and bring some relief. And that was my experience as I traveled to and from that poignant celebration of life in the midst, as I still was, of my own difficult circumstances. A new peace, inexplicable peace, joy, when I had no business feeling joyful. God reached in and touched my heart, lifted my soul. He shall be their peace. Now finally, because this is all we have time for today, we've got something important to get on with, let's turn to Psalm 22. Now this psalm is a song, it's written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus came. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from, my, took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A circle of evildoers encircles me. A company of evildoers. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Now, if you know the story of Jesus' final hours, This is going to ring a lot of bells to you. And you may be wondering, why in the lead-up to Christmas, the birth of Christ celebration, are we talking about the death of Jesus? Doesn't this belong in an Easter sermon? I'll tell you why. It makes no sense to talk about Jesus coming as a baby without also talking about why he came. He came to do what we could not do, to make peace between God and humans. In Psalm 22, King David talks about his own anguish, but this passage is also plainly prophetic. And long before Jesus came, the Jews believed that this scripture talked of another who would follow in David's footsteps. And perhaps the clearest piece of evidence that we have that this passage refers to the coming Messiah is from Jesus himself. Because as he hung on the cross dying for us, he quoted the first verse of Psalm 22, Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, that's around 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in his bruised and battered state, feeling the anguish of a slow and painful death, did Jesus feel forsaken? We know that God cannot look on sin, and here was Jesus taking all sin upon himself, taking away our sin. And so God the Father looks away. But in quoting this psalm, Jesus doesn't just express his own pain, he also draws our attention to the psalm. And the closer we look at this psalm, the wider our eyes should grow. In verse 2, the psalmist talks of unceasing prayer. And that reminds us of the time that Jesus spent in the Garden of Gethsemane, spending a long night in prayer before his arrest. Psalm 26, verse, 22, verse 6, he is to be mocked and rejected. And this is what happened to Christ. Verse 8, They say, let God rescue him. 
And this is what the passers-by and one of the criminals on one of the other crosses said of Jesus as he hung there. Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water. And this reminds us of the water that flowed from Jesus' profoundly stressed body when pierced with a sword. All my bones are out of joint. And yes, dislocation occurred during the crucifixion. Psalm 22, verse 16. They have pierced my hands and feet. And of course we know that nails were driven through Christ's hands and feet to secure him to the cross. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is what the Roman soldiers did. They were casting lots. They were gambling for Jesus' clothes, what, what was left of his belongings. And so it goes on with this psalm. It all fits. We praise God for his wisdom in weaving these signs throughout history so that men and women, young and old, could anticipate and appreciate the Messiah so that we who came after could marvel at the story. But let me make one thing clear. I don't believe in Jesus on the basis of the evidence, strong though the evidence is. I believe in Jesus because he changed my heart. I believe in Jesus because of the life he's given me. I believe in Jesus because he is the Son of God. As Jesus breathed his last on the cross, he said, it is finished. And it was. He'd won. The final verses of Psalm 22 say this. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen.